0: Talk to them about not just your project, but how your project might impact others, and what are the business trends that you've been able to fuel for customers or negative things that you've been able to help them alleviate. All from the business standpoint, I think you can begin to differentiate yourself because you're not talking product, feature, product, feature.
1: Welcome to Outside Sales Talk, where we meet with industry experts to learn the strategies and tactics that make them successful. I'm your host, Steve Benson, and I've helped thousands of salespeople all over the world crush their quota. Today, I'll help you crush yours. Welcome back to Outside Sales Talk. Today, I have Tibor Shanto with me, and we're going to be talking about proactive prospecting to boost your sales. Welcome to the show, Tibor. Great to be here, Steve. Debor's worked in B2B sales since the 1980s, and he has held almost every sales role throughout his career. DeBoer is the co-author of the award-winning book, Shift, Harness the Trigger Events that Turn Prospects into Customers, which I've actually not read all of, but I did skim a couple, a little while back, actually. that I, that, that, I rarely read things. That one I've read. There you go. <laughs> I should read more, but uh, ranked, uh, you're, he, he was ranked eighth on the list of the top 30 social salespeople in the world on Forbes in 2014, and uh, he aims to help companies of all sizes to achieve and improve their revenue goals. Um, to jump right into it, uh, Tibor, tell me, what are the best ways to research? before salespeople reach out to their prospects?
0: Um, I think there's a couple of places. I think the best place to start research is actually in-house. Um, that's not to say that the stuff that most salespeople start with, which is learning about the company, I think the current fave is things like personas and things like that. Those are important. But I think that the biggest clues as to where you can win your next deal lie in your previous deals. And not just the ones that you've won, but the ones that you've lost and the ones that have gone to no decision. So we use a tool with our clients called the 360-degree deal view, which is aimed to do exactly that. Um, I think the hard part for some salespeople around that, and it's it's not hard, it's just sort of, one is that when they lose, they need to think about how they go back and interview the customer as to why they lost, because the customer is now in implementation mode and they're worried that the salesperson is coming back to relitigate the sale as opposed to learn a lesson. But if you can get a process and probably involve your marketing or somebody else that's not as threatening to the customer. And then the other is most people wanna review the outcomes of deals right away, but it, you'll know what you may have done right or wrong, but you're not gonna have a clue as to why the customer bought so one of the things, again, is go back six, seven months after the fact and ask them what in their workflow has changed. Not what, how, they like their pro, how, you like, how they like your product or how they're using their, your product and so on, but how their workflow has changed. And as a result of that workflow, what's been the outcome? And that's the material I look for in terms of research to take to my next conversation. Because if I can understand what were the specific objectives that the customer set out to achieve, And as a result of achieving those, what were the gains for them, then that's the material of the conversation that I have with my next prospect, because they're not interested in talking about my product, they're interested in achieving similar objectives to the other customers. So that's the hard part for a lot of salespeople, because inside the building, if you'll allow the expression, you know, everything is based around product, you know, a lot of messages from marketing, the executive, this, that very little emphasis on from the customer's point of view as to what objectives they might be able to fulfill with our product. And so the hard part now is getting out of your building and going out and talking to your customers after the fact as to what's changed, what's improved, what were some of the shortcomings and so on. And then also going and talking to some people who maybe didn't choose to go with you and just finding out what were some of the specifics that you need to change.
1: Yeah. And then there's all
0: the stuff that most people expect, which is, you know, the stuff you do at the library and all that stuff. Mm
1: hmm. Yeah, I think people uh, people definitely undervalue just like having going back and looking to people that you didn't win something from or that the deal went sideways or it got paused I and mean, half the time you lose. It's because they just didn't they they uh, they just didn't do anything. Right. And so you lost to, you know, other priorities that had nothing to do with it. They were just too busy. But um it's, it's but you really also worth, learn, like,
0: what are some of the things that you can do to rekindle some of the no decision ones, um, things along those lines. It's laborious work, but once you do it, it pays dividends for a long
1: time. Yeah, well, most things that are worth doing are not easy, right? But yeah, keeping keeping track of where everybody is and being like, oh, I'm going to be in that area of town. I should offer to swing by and, you know, bring that guy up. Bring that guy a sandwich around lunchtime if he'll, uh, if, he'll if he'll chat with me and and uh, and hang out for a, for a half hour. That's really worth worth people's time, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, well, tell me what what are some common mistakes that salespeople make when they get someone on the phone with them?
0: So, one of the, some basic things that I think are easy to cut out. So, I think you know, again, we talk too much about. And it's an innocent thing, but I just sort of laugh when people call up and identify as themselves with their full title. You know, on the Midwest regional salesperson, it's like, really, you know, is that what you're going to do when you interrupt somebody in the middle of their days? Like, you know, read them your business card. So I think that that's one mistake. And I understand why it is. It's human nature. We're proud. We want to make sure that the person has a sense of who they're talking to. But think about your own experiences. When somebody interrupts you in the middle of something important, like your work day. Um, you know you sort of want them to bottom line it right so that's where people even the people who buy into the first correction make their second mistake is they bottom line it straight to feature benefit right instead of bottom lining it to objectives what are customers trying to achieve what are what have previous customers tried to achieve that I was able to successfully help them with so it's very uncomfortable for a lot of salespeople to Start with the outcome. I always say, you know, they always tell you not to start with the punchline. Start with the punchline and work your way back into the joke. Yeah, go couldn't. to the last page in a novel and go to work your way back from there, you know?
1: Yeah, this because is not a that's cliffhanger. What they this, know. This is not a mystery novel. This is a sales process. And you definitely, yeah, you want to read the last page first. Mm-hmm. I, I could not agree anymore.
0: And then make that around objectives. So, what are the objectives that these companies are trying to achieve again, based on that 360 degree deal view. Right. And now you have a chance of at least, you know, getting on the treadmill at the same direction that they're going.
1: Now should, uh, if a sales rep, if a sales rep doesn't get an answer, should they leave a voicemail when they're prospecting or should 100%. they percent.
0: I'm a big voicemail fan, so like, you know, I'll defend voicemail to the death. Um, I think, first of all, again, not to be humorous, but you know, most salespeople pick up the phone and they get voicemail, but they don't hang up. They listen to the whole thing, you know, oh, you're on vacation, oh, you want me to leave it? Like, you know, so if you're gonna put the time in and listen to the message, like their outbound message, why not leave them something in return? And I get the funniest reasons when I ask people why they don't leave voicemails, right? So they tell me, well, I want the guy to call me back. I go, well, he pretty well has to be clairvoyant to call you back if you don't leave a message, right? You know, like there is a catch-22 there. Um, Or they say they want to talk to them directly, and I point out that leaving a voicemail doesn't exclude the opportunity to talk. But they all agree that this notion of, you know, what's come to be called cadences or sequences and, and, you know, this pursuit plan involves telephone calls, and leaving a message is a tap on the shoulder. They hear your name. They see it in context and so on. So I think that people who are not leaving voicemails should, you know, admit that they're not doing their job and find another career.
1: (laughs) You know, it's funny. I asked the question because um, literally about two weeks ago, um, I was speaking with someone who was fairly new to my sales team um, in an SDR type roles. They're making a lot of prospecting phone calls and they're like, do you want me to leave voicemails for all these? And I was like, absolutely. It's just, you know, one more way of touching them. You know, we want to call them We want to, you know, send them an in-mail. We want to, we want to leave a voicemail. We want to, we want to touch them in different ways, you know, and, uh, and, and sure it might not work. They might not return the voicemail cause they don't know you from Sam, but you know, if we do it right and, and, uh, then, then they may, that actually may be the thing that, they, that catches their eye and says, oh, okay, now, and makes them aware of what, what it is that we do, and maybe they'll go to the website and check it out and say, sure. oh, actually, that would be really helpful.
0: But I'm gonna, I'm gonna counter that in a different way. Um, you know, you talked about human nature and behavior and things along those lines, right? Um, you know, I think the thing with voicemail is that salespeople, you need to be counterintuitive in voicemail, and salespeople are not counterintuitive. In fact, they're compliant. Um, so 9 out of 10, now let's be correct, 999 out of 1,000 outbound messages will include the words, please leave a detailed message, right? Why do they want a the detailed message? So they know why not to call you back. Yet every single salesperson indulges them and leaves all the details in the world, and then they're surprised that they don't get a call back. I get about 4 to 5 out of 10 messages that I leave returned in 72 hours because I give them no detail at all. And if they want to know what's between the dots that I leave, they have to call
1: me back. All right. Well, let's let's, uh, let's pretend that you are the salesperson and I am the answering machine. And uh, you leave me a voicemail.
0: Okay. So I need to know a couple of things about you. And this is serious. Um, who are some of your competitors?
1: Um, my competitor, my biggest competitor is a company called Map Anything. Who, uh, okay. So
0: assuming I've done business with them. So one of the advantages you have after 17 years in the business, is you've done business with a lot of companies and a lot of different verticals, right? Now salespeople need to look at this from a company perspective, not an individual perspective. If I joined Xerox yesterday, I may not have any customers, but Xerox has a truckload, right? And ultimately you're buying Xerox, you're not buying Tibor, right? Mm-hmm. So if I knew that map, whatever was one of your, Competitors and I have done business with them. That's the key thing. I want to put that up in big, bold, neon letters. Mm-hmm. You have to have done business with them. You can't make it up. You can't use it for convenience. You can walk up to the line of ethics, but you can't cross it. So you can't lie, right? Mm-hmm. So if I've done business with your competitor, then my message—and I don't know what they are, so we'll just call them Waymap for for the moment. Okay. And my message would be, Steve. My name is Shanto. I'm calling you from renbor you can reach me at 416 822 7781. Steve, when you call, can you please reference Waymap? And that's the message.
1: <laughs> I love it. Um, and, and I think that that will get a lot of returns. What if, what if you. About
0: four to five out of 10.
1: I, I bet. Now, what, what if you haven't done business with my competitor? What do you doing? And don't do it. Then, so there's two things that people
0: have to accept. One is the reason the technique works is momentum and curiosity, not because it's the perfect match. Mm -hmm. You don't need Pepsi to a Coke every time. Right. Right. You just need something that will evoke curiosity because this is playing off human nature. The human mind hates a mystery. If I could provoke one and give them a way to resolve it by dialing seven numbers, some will take that. Some won't. That's what we're playing with. Okay. So it's not an intellectual thing here. I don't want to pretend that it is. So, given that I can use mutual customers, I can use mutual suppliers, or I can use a big known player in your neighborhood that I might've done business with. So in Canada, for instance, I've had the good fortune of dealing with Bell mobility, which is the largest wireless carrier in Canada. Right? Mm -hmm. So every Canadian knows them. So if I don't have a direct reference, I leave that because you know, They may not like the the carrier, but they all figure that, you know, if I'm good enough for them, I might be good enough for them as well.
1: Okay. So you're saying always reference. You're going for the mystery. Yeah. Okay. I like it. So you're always referencing one of your existing customers and Mm -hmm. hopefully, especially if, if it's one of their competitors or someone in their industry or something. So, so if you were calling me, you know, CEO of Badger Maps, you would, and maybe you haven't done you haven't done business with my competitors you still might say you might reference, Yeah or 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 a similar company in my industry like you know Salesforce or Zoho or something
0: something like that you know if you know if i've worked with sales enablement tools but again i find that if i don't have anything Mm -hmm. then I can use a big company. And again, I've had the good fortune and, and, you know, that's one of the advantages of being old and and having done this for a while is, you know, I've got some good logos, right? So, um, but it didn't deter me year one either. So, you know, you just have to just keep it clean. Mm -hmm. Be imaginative, go crazy, you know, pretend that you're Jules Verne or whatever, but keep it clean. As long as it's clean, you can always look the person in the eye. So if it's freaky and wild and out there, that's okay. Just keep it clean. If mm-hmm. you haven't done business with company, it doesn't matter how convenient it is, don't go for it.
1: Sure, absolutely, Hi, high integrity. What, what, else could a, what else should a good voicemail sound like? Is there anything else that it could contain? There needs to be else- a
0: sense of urgency. So you may have noticed, and I did it intentionally, that I gave you my number real slow, and you may have noticed that I moved my arms in a cadence, because one of the things that frustrates people when they get a voicemail is when the person goes, hi, my name is George, and you can reach me. i blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. It's like, what did you say? And I got to wind it up 15 times to get the six digits. Like, you know, mm-hmm. So make it easy for them and visualize yourself writing your number, which will allow you to deliver it at a speed that's going to allow them to pick it up, right? Also, make sure that the number is the second thing that you give because people will continue to take data until they've made up their mind. And with a vacuum of information, they'll continue to take data, right? Mm. And then lastly, sound authoritative. So a lot of salespeople, for all the right reasons but in the wrong environment, try to be very polite and sociable. So they say things like, please call me at your earliest convenience. Now, you've been around the block a few times. When you hear that in a voicemail, what do you say? This person. Yeah. Right? Because it's not for your convenience that you're calling them back. It's for theirs, right? So say something authoritative, pretend that you're working for the IRS, you know, you can reach me at, or I can be called at. you know, so, but again, don't be rude or aggressive, but say it with some level of authority that makes it sound like this person needs to call you back.
1: Yeah. One, one tip I used to teach people, um, back in the day on this was, uh, when when you're, when you're saying things like your name or making a statement, don't don't have don't you want to inflect your voice down not up because it has authority to it so you don't say um hi this is steve benson and i'd love to talk to you you say hi this is steve benson i'd love to talk to you you know so it's down on the end instead of up on the end and and that changes the way it comes across for some reason
0: i think people can tack that on to the end of that and that's the key thing so if you sound semi-authoritative there's a vacuum of information. You know, again, it's not a perfect fit. About half the people will go for it and half won't. So I'll answer a couple of quick questions that most people often have is, what do I say when they ask me why I left the reference? And for me, it's an easy way to tee into my introduction because I know what vertical they're with. And as soon as I know that, I know which companies I've worked with and what I've done. So I should be able to talk to it without a lot of prompting. So to me, when they call, I do much better with those calls because I know two things. One is they can't tell me they're busy because they chose the time to call. So that's one objection I don't have to worry about. And candidly, they went down the, the, the path that I laid down for them. So I'm feeling a little bit more confident in the process. So I do slightly better. I mean, you know, statistically, I probably would have a few more points after the decimal to prove it. But in my mind, I do slightly better with callbacks than others.
1: Outstanding um, another tip I a a lot of a lot of uh, phone calling software allows you to record a message that then you can use all day if you're calling into the same industry and leaving the same company or leaving the same message so you can just drop the voicemail and it'll do it automatically that that can you can get twice as many or three times as many dials in a day during that. Not only that, but you
0: should do that. You should do that anyways. Like you should cluster your calling, right? Because you don't have to reinvent yourself after every call, right? So if I'm going to, you know, I'll decide that tomorrow I'm going after all transportation companies, right? So I don't have to reinvent every call. It's going to be all the same reference points, all the same outcomes, you know, so I can prepare a list of 30 companies. And like you say, plow through them, because I know what I'm going to say. I know what voicemail I'm going to leave and I just need to do it.
1: Very smart. So, should sellers aim to get a call back or are other types of communication like should they shoot for receiving an email? Is that okay? What would you recommend there? Do you leave an email and a phone number, just a phone number? What do you do?
0: In terms of pursuing, I I give them every opportunity to get back to me. So, whether, you know, so in in in, in a voicemail, I leave them a phone number. And if I send them an email, I, you know, clearly I put my phone number in there as well. Um, In LinkedIn, generally on the third note, you know, so first one, I'll invite them. The second one, I'll, you know, thank them for connecting. And, you know, if there's anything I could do for you. And then on the third one, I'll say, hey, you know, let's make more out of this networking than just a number. You know, are you open to extending this into the real world and comparing notes? Right. So sort of trying to get them out of LinkedIn and into the real world. So on that one, I would leave a number, you know, why not?
1: um in your voicemails would you leave an email no but that's
0: just me i mean you know again like i think there there's some black and whites and then there's some not but my theory is is that i'm trying to create a mystery so i'm not going to i'm not going to hide that and so in creating a mystery i want to be in and out as quickly as possible anything in addition to that is just going to take away from the mystery so if I leave a phone number in an email in my mind, then again, it's just my mind, not somebody else's, it's sort of beginning to sound on
1: desperate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and just canned, right? Because if I was actually leaving a message for someone, it does end up being a bit mysterious because it's not a perfect it's not a perfectly thought out message. Like if I was just gonna call you to you know, to for you know, for whatever reason. Like I I wouldn't lay it out as cleanly as you You, you pick, you get a, a voicemail, voicemail from a salesperson. It's often like it is just too perfect and scripted, right? So there is more, there's no mystery. I, I, I really like what you're trying to do with the curiosity and mystery thing. This is very cool.
0: People are interested, uh, they can find the, uh, seven day voicemail challenge. And as the name implies, well, I actually changed the format and I used to be seven emails in a row, but you know, being that we live in the age of Netflix, I just put it up and they can binge through it in one day. Um, you know, so if people are interested in that, there is that seven day voicemail challenge that, um, uh, I think they can find links to on my prospecting page, but awesome. They can walk through it on their own.
1: Yeah, we, we can put that, uh, we can put that in the show notes. There you go. Um, so do reps need to approach sales calls or prospecting or voicemails differently in these challenging economic times that we're finding ourselves in here? And, uh, and for people listening in 2025 or something, this is, this is still uh, July of 2020.
0: So it's always an interesting question is, you know, how do we do it and do we do it differently and all that? Because I've been amused by some of the articles I've been reading on LinkedIn. Some people saying nothing's changed and other people saying everything's changed. (laughs) So I think like most things, it's, it's not as simple as that. So I generally, you know, when I talk about sales, the question generally is around, has sales changed in general? So I think we can take the same model and answer your question. And I generally look at it that there's three concentric circles. The outside one is tools. there's always new tools, new applications, reinventions and all that. And, you know, every time that a salesperson gets a new tool to to, to be able to engage with a prospect, the prospects get new tools that help them not engage with the salesperson and all that. So there's constant change there. And I think the way that those changes come about do change the way that people, buyers behave and sellers behave. And, and, you know, a quick thing that I like to point to is if you look at the last decade, there was that whole question of information parity, all of a sudden salespeople weren't needed because buyers can get the information on their own. But then sometime around 2012, 2013, that completely switched to where now there is like overload. And while there's a lot of information, there's less and less insight and less and less knowledge. And if you look at the stuff coming out of the various research houses, buyers are actually looking for salespeople to, to help them with the stuff that they're looking for and so on
1: oh yeah to act as guides i feel like i feel like we when when we're evaluating an investment or, or or purchasing something at our company i feel like half the time there's too much information and that you know half the part of the value of me talking to the sales rep is is that i'm guiding they're guiding me through all the the glut of information floating around out there and i and and i think it's like that for our, for our product as well like you know there, there's you know they're if you just read the, the, you can't go online and read like about feature specs and that sort of thing. And com, like, there's so many comparison websites for software and everything else. And it's like, but most stuff on there is BS, and most of the reviews are are written by the company and their sister. And you know, like it's it makes there's so much garbage out there that a sale actually having like a being able to engage with a sales rep, I feel like is 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 as valuable today as it's ever been.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, you, so I think where the value that, to answer your question, so in the second circle is how people use these tools and, and you know, so that, again, changes the way that, that people buy and sell. But the center circle, I don't think, has changed since the serpent sold, you know, Eve the Apple, which is why people buy. And I think that if a, if a salesperson can continue to focus on why that purchaser is making the decision that they're making, how they'll make it is secondary and important. But I think much of the discussion these days is stuck in the how and not the why. To some degree, the what we're doing, the how we're doing it, and there's camps like we talked about before, you know, people will die for SaaS or whatever, you know. Um, but if you look around, there's very little discussion as to why people are making a purchase. And that, I would argue, hasn't changed. The reason that somebody went out to buy a piece of machinery in 1955, I would argue is very little indifference as to why they go out to buy it now. The machine will be different, the process will be different, a host of things around it will be different. They may lease it instead of buy it, they might buy it on a monthly plan instead of, but the why they pulled the trigger to begin with, I would argue hasn't changed that much. And if you can focus on that, you can then wiggle your way through the other stuff. But I think one of the things that I'm seeing today, especially when it comes to prospecting, once they're engaged, it's easier. It's more of a human process. There is an agreement to at least have a conversation. But when you're prospecting somebody, there isn't that. And you know, again, I think that if you can connect on the why, they'll give you a lot more leniency on how you get them there. But if all you focus on is the how and not tell them why they want to do it, there's always going to be this tug of war.
1: Absolutely, and that that gets back to what you were saying earlier about uh, reading the last page of the mystery novel first, right? Yeah. Um, and well, and and what about what about building trust? That's that's so important early on in in, in the prospecting process. How, how can salespeople build trust with their prospects when they're just over the phone early in the process?
0: So I think a couple of things. One is, you know, one that's come up in the context of what could younger salespeople do to just generally engage and create rapport with someone my age. Um, And, you know, so stories are very effective. They've always been a human type of thing. And if you think about it's one of those primitive things that we react to on the primal brain level, because, you know, the people who used to tell us stories when we were young were people we inherently trusted. So if I can capture your imagination with a good story, I'm sort of laying the beginnings. And I want to emphasize the beginnings of the ability for you to trust me because you're comfortable in the environment. So I think one is to be able to tell stories. Um, I think that if we had a dollar for every time the word empathy was used in the last three months, we'd all be well (laughs) off. (laughs) But I think there is truth to what I think the intent behind the statement is, is that... At the end, selling and buying is still inherently a human relation, a human thing. And clearly the normal flow of human interaction has been disrupted over the last few months. So I think that rather than being empathetic, the way to begin to get trust and so on is to actually ask some of the difficult questions because you're actually showing care. Like I I find a lot of salespeople reluctant to ask difficult questions because they quote-unquote don't want to push the customer or they don't want to ask something that that's you know close to the bone but I know that I'm a businessman you're a businessman sometimes you want somebody to go to the bone and help you figure that out you know I, I talk about this I closed the deal a couple of years ago it was a one call close which is unheard of like in 17 years it's the only time I've done it right and my wife asked me why I was able to do it and I literally believe I gave the guy therapy I asked him questions that he'd been asking himself for years, but has had the luxury of avoiding the answer. But with me in the room, he had to put the answer on the table. And as soon as those sounds came out of his mouth, he knew he had to deal with it. So I think sometimes the way to get trust is to ask the questions that you're most reluctant to ask. Now, can't ask about his wife and you can't ask about her husband and all the good things that we know about. But one of the things that you'll get out of your 360 degree deal view and understanding why you won and lost in the past is what are some of the difficult issues that customers were dealing with that were relieved by virtue of dealing with you? To get to that, you have to ask that difficult question. And if you do it politely and professionally, as we talked about in a different context, ethically, you'd be surprised the kind of answers you get and the kind of catharsis that your prospect will have because they're not able to talk about this. And the oldest cliche in sales, you know, doctors ask us a lot of embarrassing questions and we answer them because we know they're asking it to ultimately help us. So those are some things, stories, and then being direct and asking the difficult questions and not being shy about it.
1: Right, no, that, that's, that's a there's very <laughs> powerful advice right there. Um, what, what about earlier in the sales cycle? What about at the prospecting phase? What should reps say to build trust when they're just leaving a voicemail or sending an email in order to build that trust?
0: Well, clearly my voicemail technique is not built for trust, so you know, uh, <laughs> you know, let, let's put that on the table right away. It's built to get me a call back, and then I'll work on the trust part. So my philosophy, right or wrong, but I'm on, I'm on here with you now, is that the effort. To create any element of trust in voicemail is either going to work against you or it's not going to be worth your while. Okay. If you're using my technique, I'm not talking for other people's techniques, but what's my technique? Name, rank, and serial number. It doesn't elicit a lot of trust, right? So I'm not even going to pretend that that's, you know, but I think across email, the way that you write it, the references that you make, um, you know, especially if you're doing sort of this ongoing sequence if you can raise issues that you know others like them are dealing with. So instead of calling, instead of writing an email, talking about your wonderful product and all that crap, you know, write an email that, you know, the last 10 guys that you sold to were happy to resolve. So basically stating, you know, we know that VPs of sales are dealing with this and this and this and this, then offer up a potential resolution that you may have. And then give an example of a customer that testifies to the outcome, not to the features they liked. And then you've got like a cute little email that tells a story, right? Yeah. Less than 150 words.
1: Well, and that that's a data point right there that you believe that these prospecting emails should be that short. I mean, a hundred and 150 words is almost nothing. That's a couple sentences.
0: I want a conversation. I don't want you to read a Toy Story novel. (laughs) I've I mean, gotten emails where I've written the guy back. I said, you know, dude, let me know when the movie's out. You know, like, you know, like these huge emails. Like, you know, yeah, didn't realize yeah. there were that many words in the English language. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a great point, and I I feel like you know when writing these types of sequenced emails or outreach emails, we want to put so much in them, and and maybe there's some some of your curiosity. Um, stuff is really important. It would, would work better there, and just leading them to the next step uh, in, in their discovery process around you would be, would be better. But uh, 100, 150 words, that's literally like four sentences, I think. So that's, that's uh, pretty crisp. I like it.
0: Yeah, I, I, the only reason I, know, I was talking to somebody this morning, and, and the way that I did it with this one company is we did couplets, right? So we did one and then reinforced it a few days later with the same subject, but just with the reline. And I picked up the document and combined the two, um, the two emails. So each couplet had, one of them was 233 words. So I'll
1: take um, the company
0: name out and send it to you.
1: Okay, cool. Yeah, I'd like to see that. Um, what, about, what about competitors and differentiation? How, how can a salesperson differentiate themselves from their competitors uh, early in the sales cycle at the prospecting phase?
0: So again, um, and I can demonstrate it, but I think one way to differentiate is not to talk about the same thing that others do. So I'll tell you a quick exercise that I do with my groups, right? I tell them to picture somebody that they're currently trying to prospect, somebody that they're after, right? I'm a, I'm a hunter by nature, so I talk like that, right?
1: Mm-hmm. So,
0: you know, and I say, picture that individual, it doesn't matter if they're an executive, middle, whatever, right? And ask yourself how many different decisions that person might be involved in, internal, external, and all that, right? And then ask yourself, how many components does these of those projects that they might be involved in have, right? Three, four, five. Like, I would imagine you're rarely a standalone, right? Very rarely. So, So how many components? And then each of those components has a viable salesperson, right? So now I want you to picture this person and ask yourself how many unsolicited approaches they get in a given day. So I'm not good with math, so I memorize the stuff for five. Most people tell me 10 to 25 calls. If they get five unsolicited emails, telephone calls, or a LinkedIn in-mails in a given day, and they work 48 weeks in a year, that's 1,200 calls or approaches. If they've been in the same role, not necessarily with the same company, but let's say they've been VP of finance for the last five years, they've gotten 6,000 of these calls. Who's better prepared, them or us? So, you know, I think that people need to think through that if you're going to get through to somebody, you have to sort of talk about the outcomes because they've heard the various stories about being customer centric and being reliable and this, that. So, I don't know, I guess the biggest, the busiest highway where you are is 101. Yep. So, I tell people to think about what is your prospect sitting on the one Oh one at a quarter to nine on the last Wednesday of the quarter, what are they thinking about? And that's what you got to connect with on the prospecting call, not your product, not the prizes you want, not the shiny shit on the corner. It's the stuff that that person is thinking about on their way to work on the last quarter of the month, last Wednesday of the quarter. If you can connect with the issues they're thinking about, you're going to get an appointment and the issues you need to connect with are in your 360 degree deal view.
1: So find out from your existing customers and, and, and deals you've already lost, what's about what the problems that people are trying to solve with your product, and Not then... Not just
0: problems, where are they trying to go? Again, problems is a small subset of the market, right? Like most people mm-hmm. don't think they have a lot of problems, even now, as we talked about, right? Like, you know, you get enough buffer from reality and even though I can prove to you it's a problem, you're not going to see it as a problem, right, but if I can connect with your aspiration, that's much more powerful, right?
1: Yeah, so problems, goals, hopes, aspirations, dreams, your future
0: mm-hmm
1: okay, so connect with uh connect with your prospect on that level so you know it always goes back to
0: the same thing. It's what objectives have you helped others achieve so you know so. Most VPs of sales, when they talk to me, they wanna talk about activity in the pipeline. They wanna talk to me about shortening their sales cycle and depending what industry they're in, they either might wanna talk about more accurate forecasts, staff retention, whatever the case is, right? But you get to know sort of which is going to be the conversation with which one, right? Mm -hmm. So what am I gonna lead with on the phone? Basically, you know, Steve, my name's Shanto, calling from a company called Rembor, probably not familiar with me, VPs of sales over at Chevron Texaco, Pitney Bowes, and Recall use us to increase activity in their pipeline, shorten the sales cycle. And you know what they tell us, Steve, is in the process? Their forecast has actually improved. Do you know what I'm selling at this point?
1: Uh, confidence. In between, right? Yeah, you're selling confidence in their forecasting abilities, selling selling revenue. So chances
0: are, On the 101 on Wednesday or the highway near you, wherever you're listening to this. Those were the things that a VP of sale was probably thinking about. So, if I called up and talked about my wonderful award-winning programs that, you know, have been accredited by this, that, and the other, their reaction is going to be the same as mine. Who cares? Go tell your mother. You know, she's probably proud. But, you know, (laughs) like, but if I can relate to something and it is, and, I, and when I talk about it in my programs, people think it's odd, but I say dangle some value in front of them. Just dangle it, you know, and see if they jump. Not a nice way to put it, but you know what I mean. So sure, I have- sure.
1: Well, so I, so I guess these are the keys to differentiation. Um, I feel like these are also the keys to keeping a deal going, keeping a, a sales process from from stalling. Is uh, are, are there, Are there other tips that you would have for for a sales rep who's trying to keep their sales process from stalling?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, first of all, so there's two things. Sometimes deals do stall and we have to accept it. So the first thing to do is to make sure whether you've got a, you know, a live one or a fake one, because if it is really stalled then let it, you know, it it deserves to be in the penalty box for a while. They're not going to leave the planet. They're going to be here. But if you keep, pursuing them, that's time you're never going to get back. So just put them in the stalled box. You can always visit them every Monday, see if they're ready to rock and roll. Right? So to me, the other part of it, though, is always comes back to that 360 that we talked about earlier, because that will tell me the type of things that I can initiate conversations with. So if let's say we have an area of discussion around improving your cycle time, and all of a sudden that stalls out, I can go back to my 360 and see that in addition to that, maybe you were looking to hedge some of the commodities that go into your product. Maybe you were looking to alter your supply chain just based on previous experiences before. So I think, again, as long as I've got objectives that I can raise that I've been able to deal with with other customers, I should be able to have the conversation going. On the other hand, and I think this is a mistake that a lot of sales organizations make, If you've exhausted everything and the person's not responding, then you know you can't kiss every girl at the ball. You have to move on. But most people stick tight, and I'll tell you why, is because they don't have enough prospects. So if they acknowledge to themselves that this is not real, then they have to go out and get prospects. So rather than prospect, they pretend that it's real. And so they pretend that it's not stalled. But most of the time, shortening your sales cycle, this, that, it's an attempt to make up for the fact that they're not prospecting enough. If you had enough prospects in your pipeline, you wouldn't care if it takes 3 years cuz you know you have something closing every day.
1: Yeah, that reminds me uh, uh what the first million dollar deal or over a million dollar deal I ever did was uh it, it had just been sitting there in the penalty box for I don't know, 8 months or something. Like it just just sitting there doing nothing, just stalled You know, I'd I'd given them a demo, you know, eight months before and had like a meaningful conversation, had a meaningful set of conversations with them. And then it just kind of stalled out and slid sideways, wasn't a priority. And I was down to calling them, like, you know, calling or emailing, like just touching base with them every like two months. And I called them up. It was kind of near the end of a quarter. And they were like, yeah, you know, actually, uh, I did actually want to do this. Um, I, I, I want to do this, you know, in the next two weeks. And it was like, it was good. So I fit, it into, I fit it into Q2 even, and it was just totally out of nowhere. But they had, you know, it had been on their mind the whole time. They just weren't, hadn't gotten around to it. So it, having a good cadence on your follow-ups is so important.
0: But that, you know, that's the other part of it is that, um, You know, I was doing some work for a company writing cadences. Um, The name shall remain nameless to protect the innocent, mostly me. Um, And um, I lost my train of thought there. We'll come back to it, it wasn't that important.
1: Oh, you were just talking about follow ups and cadences and oh yeah yeah yeah
0: so I was doing research in in trying to figure things out and I came across this interesting piece of research that in any CRM and I think they were talking about the big one um mm-hmm. you will find a hundred to three hundred unfollowed up on activities. So these are activities that salespeople put in there yet they hadn't followed up on them. So in terms of money sitting in your stalled um that you know if you just one of your cadences should be revisiting your stalled file. And I think you should visit it every Monday because you don't know which one's going to pop.
1: Yeah. One, one company I worked at when I was, when I was a sales rep, if you hadn't worked uh, an account and I think it was two months, I think was the rule they would, uh, anyone could go after it. And so I was a pretty new rep on the team. And so, you know, I, I would just check on a very like, you know, every couple of days, I'd be like, "Up, oh, what's been more than 60 days?" Because after 60 days, that you know, a, a nice, nice deals that other people had been working, if they hadn't been touched in 60 days, I was, lo- I was able to jump on them because they didn't, because uh, I didn't, I my the territory they would assigned me was garbage, and like I had, I didn't have a lot to do, so I was able to really get get some get some of my early deals. You know, from just being on the ball with, uh, with, with other people slipping off the ball, basically.
0: I knew one company, they had 14 days to get an order or it was put back into the general
1: pool. Wow. It's hardcore. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a fast sales cycle.
0: Yeah. I don't think a lot of guys did well.
1: No, it sounds a little crazy. I mean, unless you had a product that literally sells, you know, no, has a week, wasn't two-week teacher. sales cycle. Um, and, and you want to encourage your reps to be able to invest, right? I mean, so th- this is only if the account hadn't been touched if they'd sent them one email in the last two months then it was still theirs it was only it only went back into the if it wasn't being worked basically
0: i think that's always a challenge for sales leaders is you know where where is it that we give reps enough runway to make a go of it but not to you know lose the opportunity because it wasn't approached right so and i can't say that i have an answer yeah some puzzles are just meant to be
1: What about, um, we've talked a little bit about creating urgency, what other tips and thoughts do you have for sales reps who are early in the prospecting process trying to create urgency or communicate that this is something that should be done now as opposed to eight months from now?
0: So I think you need to lead them to have that discovery themselves. So I think some things you can tell people and some things you can help them discover and think of your own self or think of myself. There's some things that I'll let people tell me, but stuff that I've been sitting with and, you know, especially look at the stuff that I sell sales training, I deal with a lot of, you know, strong personalities and things like that. So, you know, to me, to try and create urgency, from the outside is gonna be difficult. But I can't create urgency on the inside. And again, I go back to my favorite thing, which is the 360. And one of the things that I look for in general is what were the changes that I was able to create for my customers? So what are some of the gaps that I've been able to fill for my customers? So I'll give you a quick example. If I'm approaching a VP of sales and based on the industry and other things that I've gleaned, I'm convinced that my best shot here is a prospecting program. Then the question I would ask you is, Steve, you know, I'm curious, how much of your current revenue comes from existing customers versus brand new customers? And people usually give me a number like 90, 10, 85, 15, something like that, right? And I'll go, I get it. So that's good. So I go, I'm curious, if I looked at your 2020 plan, Steve, what did you have in there? And it's never been the same number in 17 years, right? There's always a variance between where they are and what their objectives were. Right. Which is what they put in their 2020 plan. So where most salespeople make the mistake is as soon as they see that gap, they want to jump into it. Oh, I can help you. fill. That's what we do. That's why you need us. We can help you to get there. Right. But you have to remember that the same person that was stuck on the one on one on the way to work on the way home, they spend their time in the car rationalizing all the things they hadn't dealt with that day. Right. So you telling them that there's something here is not new for them because they've lived it, right? So as soon as that gap comes up, instead of jumping into it, if you wanna create urgency, the very next question you have to ask is go, really Steve, I'm curious, what do you attribute that to? So now I'm forced you to think about this gap. Instead of me guessing as to why and this, that, and the other, usually I know what they're gonna say, because I have done my research, but it needs to come out of their mouth. If you're gonna create urgency, it's gotta come out of their mouth. You gotta ask those difficult questions that we talked about earlier. So when they give you the gap, instead of going to say, hallelujah, I can fill that gap, the person's clearly demonstrated that they're not willing to put any effort into filling it or they would have done it before you called, right? So now you've gotta evolve that. And if you wanna create urgency, the first thing you gotta do is ask them why they think that is because they got to be involved in the process or else they're not going to see any urgency in it. And once they tell you, and you got to keep picking, you got to keep picking and salespeople don't like to go deep. They like to stay on the surface. So I've had a VP of sales that I sat across the table from who was with a public company and this thing of what will it mean to you if you actually achieve the objective that you set out for yourself, we took it right down to the value of his stock options because they were a public company. So for every uptick in, you know, quota, there was that much uptick in his talk. Now he's emotionally involved in trying to change that, right? Before that, me telling you that I could fill that gap for you, you go, okay, right. But if I get you emotionally involved, what's the upside if you achieved your, objection, or your objective? Because you've been driving home on the, on the 101, rationalizing why it's okay that I didn't achieve what I set out to do today. But if I can get you to think about what's in it for you if you do it, then you might get more emotionally involved, right? But we also know that as soon as I leave the office and by the time the elevator door opens in the lobby, they're gonna start reverting back to their comfort zone, right? So you wanna make sure that after you got them to relive the possibilities of achieving it, you also put on the table the cost of inaction, right? So how long can you sustain this gap between your target and what you're actually delivering? And, Most people are smart, Steve. They know I'm asking them when they're going to get fired, right? You know, so, you know, (laughs) then the next thing is, you know, what's the value? So if you're actually able to achieve that thing that you set out for yourself that you haven't actually achieved yet, but you pretend that you're a VP of sales, um, you know, so what would the value of that be, right? And so they give you a number, but then extrapolate that over the life of that being a benefit. So if I know their salespeople are on average within four years and my prospecting program is going to give them four years of gain, I'm going to extrapolate that value times four because I want that value to be real. So that's how I create
1: urgency. Yeah. The but better it's going to come from them. Hmm. Yeah. You, you, the, you have to show your benefits <laughs> and your value and then they have to decide what it means for them. And the better you can connect your value and the benefits that your prospect will, will attain or get or achieve, or conversely, the, if you can connect the value and benefits that your prospect will... I'll will, phrase it differently. I, um, you know, humorously I say it's like a game of Jeopardy.
0: You play Jeopardy? Did you ever watch the TV show Jeopardy? Sure. How do you make money on Jeopardy?
1: Answering correct questions. No. You ask the
0: right questions. They give you the answer. You have to ask the right question.
1: Uh, The 360
0: degree deal view will give you the answer. You now just have to come up with the question that gets you that answer. So no, it's not features benefit that I lead with. It's the answer that I need from them to be able to lay my product on the table. And that's why I say it has to come from their mouth, not mine. If I put the issue on the table, it's my issue. They don't have to own it. But as soon as he tells me that there's a gap between what he committed to his president that he's going to deliver versus his sorry ass when he's not delivering it, that's what I want to play off.
1: Yeah, make, make it, make it uh, about what they're going to get personally or professionally. I, I loved how you connected the stock options and what, how it would affect him, the VP the of sales to, uh, to what you were doing. That was so cool um so what about objections how can sales reps avoid or minimize objections while they're prospecting stay in bed
0: Um, but if you're going to prospect you're going to deal with it you know like it's like it's like asking, how do I avoid getting wet when I'm swimming? I mean, you know, I don't know, put on a wetsuit, but you're still going to get wet, right?
1: Well, maybe I should ask, how, do you, how, how can sales reps deal with uh, objections when they're prospecting? What are some strategies they could use? Like little children. No. Um,
0: so first of all, you know, I do this thing in my programs where they freak out over these objections. So, and it's based on stats that I got from various sources, I can share them with you. But when you look at the average close rate for a, sales approved lead or marketing qualified lead. Depending on the sources, the number ranges anywhere from 5% to 22%, right? Mm -hmm. Depending on the industry, what you're selling, so forth and so on. Yeah. So the stat that I use is 16.41. It's based on a number from marketing Sherpa, right? So that's across B2B. So it includes people who are selling nuts and bolts and people who are selling quite complex systems, right? So... The average person who goes through my prospecting program or similar good programs, there's a lot of good ones out there, right? If you take a look at their connect or conversation to appointment ratio, right? It's roughly about 14%, right? Now, if you take a look at the inverse number, 16.41 close ratio equals an 83.59% rejection rate, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and a 14% conversion rate on appointments equals an 86% rejection rate. So why do we freak out over 86% but we seem to be wanting to go on every appointment we get when our rejection p- potential is probably about 83.59%. So I think this rejection, I think it's real. I mean, again, it's part of that primitive thing. You know, if you were rejected when we were on the Savannah fit 5 million years ago, it was certain death. So, Rejection, feeling of pain and all that is real. There's a lot of reading that you could do that there is a physical element to rejection. But it's no different if you're going to pursue a marketing qualified lead than it is picking up the phone and, and asking somebody, cold out, do you want to meet? And there was a study, you can find it on LinkedIn, by this guy, what's his name? Grant. He has a, um, I think it's Adam Grant. He has a podcast, Life uh, Life Work or whatever. He's a workplace psychologist. And it was an episode, and he talked about it on LinkedIn, where they were talking about, you know, people don't like to network, it's difficult to walk up to people, and so on. But they found that in walking up to strangers and asking them to do something for you, people had the same success rate walking up to six people as people sending 200 emails. So if you can get over that reality, the physical reality of rejection, and get over the fact that there really isn't that much more rejection in prospecting than there is in closing deals. I think the difference is a lack of process. Most people have a sales process. Even most softwares now have something that resembles a sales flow or process, right? But very few, again, I don't look at SalesLoft and InsightSales.com and all that as a process. It's more like a, a facilitator. But very few organizations have a prospecting process. And whether they admit it or not, most of them still have the philosophy of there's your desk, there's your phone, and I'll see you at the pipeline meeting on Monday. And so in a sale, if I have a process and I have certain things that I need to do, I can begin to see where I need to make incremental changes in order to improve my game. So that 83% rejection rate is not any better, but I have some way of contextualizing, taking lessons and moving forward. right? But without those sort of mild, you know, those mild things or or markers, you know, in prospecting, all you're left with is the rejection. You have no way of knowing how could I have done things differently? Is this what should have happened? Most people can't even tell me their sales number. They can tell me their favorite baseball numbers, batting average, and even what the batting average is if it's a left-handed pitcher or a right-handed pitcher, but they can't give me their own numbers.
1: And What about, um, what about timelines? Mm -hmm. What is, what is your, what do do you think a rep should use as a timeline for following up with a prospect? And, and and when do you give up as a sales rep on prospecting a certain account? How do you know that you're just uh, mining for you're panning for gold in the wrong river?
0: So I think giving up is an extreme, um, you know, because I think that, in some ways that question would have landed differently before the internet because right now I I can take the most dormant account and I can automate touching base with them and seeing what the, what the reaction is. Right. So I don't think I would ever give up. I would put him into deep stall, but we all have examples. I, I, I'm working with a client now where I first approached him in 2015. Right. So, you know, when do you give up? I would say, you know, not, you know, Don't give up is sort of the answer. Um, In terms of prioritizing, I think you look at things like trends in the market, trends in the industry, Um, and again, um, you look for those things where you can come up with a specific narrative based on how you can help them resolve a business issue as opposed to why they should have, you know, your product and so forth. You know, to give you an example, like, you know, when people ask me what sales book their people should read... I always say tell them I always tell them to get the 10 day MBA so they can understand what some of the business issues are and so on. And I think that that's one thing that we could do better as as a, as a tribe is we very few go in and have a business conversation. Yet we're meeting with business people. Most go in and have a sales conversation and look at that person as being a buyer. But buying our product is a very small element of their entire whole thing. Even for a VP of sales, if they buy my service, as central as it is, it's only one of many, many things that they need to deal with. Um, So if you could talk to them about not just your project, but how your project might impact others, and what are the business trends that you've been able to fuel for customers or negative things that you've been able to help them alleviate all from the business standpoint, I think you can begin to differentiate yourself because you're not talking product, feature, product, feature, but it takes work. And again, I, I, I know that salespeople have a full-time job. I know that they're working hard to begin with, but, You know, in some ways, if you look, if we look at sports as as sort of an analogy, if you look at the best athletes, they're the ones that are in the stadium, you know, an hour before the game and hours after the game and so on. So,
1: yeah, Michael Jordan, he wasn't the story that he uh, won the world championship and then went to practice free throws after. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, like, so...
0: I think sometimes the answer to a lot of these questions that salespeople are trying to figure out is just a little, you know, a little bit of focus and deciding on trying to do something and then actually sticking with it. I think that's one, one of the sort of nasty trends in sales, but it's, it's a trend in every industry is, you know, you got to have this year's model, right? So that's fine when you're looking at a Chevy, but you know, just when it's taking you seven, eight, nine, ten 10 months to get the team, centered around the thought and then all of a sudden you bring in next year's model, is it going to really work? You know? So, um, but this this obsession with new is sort of interesting all around. Although I don't mind when I'm the new guy, but you know, um, uh, so.
1: <laughs> what but, about, uh, what, what about sales cycle duration? What do you think, uh, what do you recommend to companies that you're working with to, that they, if if the problem is that their sales cycles are too long, how can, how can a salesperson or how can a sales organization shorten their sales cycles?
0: So I think a couple of steps. First of all, I think what they should strive for is optimizing their sales cycle, not shortening it. Because when you go for shortening their sales cycle, you get it in your mind that you got to keep shortening it. But if if the optimum sales cycle for you is eight weeks and you try to go to six, you're going to end up doing shortcuts that are actually going to extend your cycle as opposed to keep it down. So I think the discussion should be about optimizing the sales cycle. The other is that different people on your team are going to have different skill sets. So I have a friend in the States who does exactly what I do, but he comes out of the old traditional Xerox sales and all that. So you put him in front of, an executive, and 80% of those people he'll close, but he can't prospect for his life. So his sales cycle is going to be different in nature than mine. So I think, again, going for this absolute thing is not a smart thing. So I think you bell curve it for the salespeople individually, and you bell curve it for the team. And then as a manager, you try and coach to the optimum as opposed to continuing to try and short it because I truly believe that the issue they're trying to solve is a lack of prospects as opposed to shortening the sales cycle. So they get to like mid quarter and they see that they're a little bit short. And so how can we get these guys in this quarter? And you've heard VPs have that discussion and it's sort of frightening what they end up resorting to, to do that.
1: Mm -hmm. But
0: would they, if, if, if their average close ratio for their team, so not individual, but their team close ratio was four to one and they had sixty-one prospects in their pipeline, would they really care how fast it closes as long as they know that six to one was consistent? Because it's all, even if it closed five years from now, as long as one closes every day, that's what counts. What they're worried about is there's not enough in there. I got to get this in before the end of the quarter or else I'm really going to miss my number. Mm-hmm. And then they, what they do is they shortcut next quarter.
1: Yeah. This is one of my biggest pet peeves is when sales organizations, um, compromise their profitability and the company's growth because they are so focused on shortening sales cycles. And especially I'll see this with, with uh, dragging deals into quarters. Like they'll, they'll set a quarterly goal and they'll stop at nothing to make that quarterly goal, including taking sales cycles that just needed to be a little longer, but they'll, you know, they'll cut the sales cycle short Give the product away for a you know forty percent discount and drag it into this quarter unnaturally, whereas if they had just let it happen naturally, it, the whole company would have done so much better because you know maybe the maybe the margin of the product's fifty percent, you just gave a forty percent discount, you could have gotten the whole deal if you had waited another two and a half months, and uh, so now you need five times as many deals to have the same profitability, and I think a lot of times. Sales organizations will do this because they're just completely throttled and compensated on, on, on revenue as opposed to being compensated margin. and thinking about the margin.
0: Yeah. I did a, I did a video, I think last week or two weeks ago, where the title was, what's your margin on that discount?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the, especially in a down economy, it's such a valuable yeah. lesson for you to be given to people because this we see all the time, right? Where. There's a, you know, you've got a product with a 30% margin and your company your reps on revenue. And so they, uh, you know, the, you, they give a 15% discount. So it's actually half your margins. Now you need, exactly. in a down economy, they're like, oh, to get the deal done, we gotta give a 15% discount. Now you need twice as many deals to keep the same profitability as a company. Uh, than if you didn't give that fifteen percent discount, uh, and and the rep, but the rep's not taking, not losing half of their half of their um, paycheck, no. half of their comp. They're they only losing fifteen percent because they are comped on revenue. This is a this is a, one of the key mistakes I see sales organizations making all the time. Like they're they comp their reps on 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 uh, revenue, but in a down economy, maybe. They should be thinking about comping their reps and shifting the, the, the compensation plan to being comped on margin because then they'll, they'll actually end up, uh, you pay the reps the same amount, but you really incentivize not to give away the margin.
0: I worked with one company that had an interesting, you know, I think it was a head game they played with their salespeople and a good one. Not, the other games they played weren't, but this was good. What they told their people is you can discount one deal a year and you have to come and tell us why you want to discount it. And people were reluctant to pull the trigger because what if I pull it in February and I get a real dog in like October, right? Mm-hmm. So what they found is that these requests didn't come to like, you know, November, December, and that the salespeople struggled through to sell the deals at full value because they only had one kick at the can and they didn't want to
1: use it early. <laughs> it's, it's pretty ingenious. Well, and it teaches them not to do it. I mean, it's the, Especially, it depends on your industry. Obviously, I mean, some industries are you know highly competitive, highly commoditized, and and there's negotiations in every in every deal. I mean, in in other industries, it's like, well, we have a pretty unique value proposition. Every customer that uses us gets a ton more valuable value than they're paying. And this is you know, my whole career has been in software, so certainly you know this applies to a lot of software companies where it's like, well you're getting 10 times the value that you're paying for this. So the 20% discount isn't, isn't what's making the determination on whether you get this or not. What's really going on here? Do you not think you're going to get 10 times the value out of this or, you know, or do you think this maybe won't work or do you really just not have the money or you know, what, what's, what's actually going on? But that's um, most, most or sales organizations use discounting inappropriately, I think.
0: Yeah. Um, what I find interesting, I mean, I get it, uh, you know, because I've carried a bag, but just, you know, sitting, looking at, at at the tribe from the vantage point that I have is that they actually build it into their systems. You know, it used to be that you used to have to go and talk to your manager to get a discount, but now I've seen companies that build it into the system. So this is what we want. This is the discount. It's like, dude, work for it a little bit, you know? like.
1: Yeah. Well, it, I would encourage every sales manager right now in a down economy to to think about. Am I? I've always come my reps on on revenue. Is now the time to look at comping them on margin? Because our margins are getting squeezed everywhere by every every procurement department in the country. <laughs> well, the next. That'd be interesting. Yeah, oh, for sure. Well, the the next section is sales in sixty seconds. So, quick questions, quick answers. So, okay. first, first, quick question. What, in your opinion, is the most important part of the sales process and why?
0: Prospecting, because it all starts there. If you don't start it, you can't finish it. I tell managers, ask them what they opened, not what they closed.
1: Yep, couldn't agree more. What should salespeople include in every voicemail? Very little.
0: <laughs> you know, go cryptic, man. Name, rank, and serial number. Leave them your phone, your name, your phone number, and a competitor that you've indeed
1: dealt with, that would raise their curiosity. What's the biggest mistake people make when they're prospecting? I think assuming
0: that everybody is as enamored with their product as they are, um, because most people, again, they look at the outcomes. So you know, talk about that. And they don't care whether that comes in, you know, on a donkey or a computer thing, as long as it delivers the outcome that they want.
1: What's your favorite sales book or resource? The 10 day MBA. And do you have a sales productivity hack that you'd like to share? I don't
0: know if I call it a sales productivity hack, but you know, I like to, you know, I was talking to somebody that one of the things that I did when I started this business is I put a resume up on all the job boards. At that time, Monster was the big one. I know Indeed and Zip are the big ones now, but I have one on on Indeed as well. Um, and the reason being that as soon as you put a resume up on a job board, it allows you to create an agent or search. And so I create a search for salespeople and every time a job for a salesperson is posted, I get an email. And they get a phone call as to what are you going to do to make sure this person ramps up as quickly as possible. So I get gigs like that because, you know, I get them at the right time.
1: Yeah. I used to use job boards too. At one sale, one, one company I was at, I could, uh, if people were hiring for a certain, um, type of, of role, I, I, I knew that it was, there was a good chance that they had a problem that we could solve. And so I was, uh, I I I had like all these alerts set up for for people that would be that were for companies that would hire for a certain role.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um,
0: Sometimes low tech still works, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is uh, you know two thousand five technology, right? Well, as an actionable takeaway, what should the field salespeople listening today do as a first step to get started uh, prospecting by phone better?
0: I think again, they need to. I have this expression that I use: they need to leave the product in the car. You know, grab a couple of paintbrushes, some color tubes, and a blank canvas, and see what you can paint up with the customer. So, if you're going to do that on the phone prospecting, you have to, as we talked about, imagine what that picture needs to look like for for that person to recognize themselves in it, and then paint that picture.
1: I love that. Leave the product in the car. I was, I was always. Uh at odds a little in, in, in a sales role that I, that I recall, they, they always r- really wanted us to demo the product, show the product, show the speeds and feeds, the features. And I always would go into the meetings and, and keep kicking the can on the, on, on the demo. Cause I wanted to talk about the value and talk about the customer and I didn't, I didn't want to show them like I, I would start a demo, but I wouldn't go anywhere with it. I would just keep talking to them like about their, what, you know, like So it would be up on the screen, but we wouldn't actually be demoing it. We would just be discussing. I, I, I'll I do the same thing with slides sometimes. Like I'll bring a deck, I'll put it up on the screen, and then we won't really go through them.
0: <laughs> demo is a four-letter word, you know. Uh, I was invited to bid on this RF, RFP for this organization, and they said that I have to come in and do a PowerPoint. I said, I don't do PowerPoints. You know, it's not part of my thing. I love building them for other people, but to use them, I you know, um, so they said, no, if you're going to bid, if you're going to respond to the RFP, you have to do a PowerPoint. So I was, what am I going to do? So I took all my questions and I put them on each slide. So they got their PowerPoint. <laughs> I followed the rules.
1: <laughs> I put my questions up on the slides. Right? Genius. So,
0: <laughs> didn't get the gig, but I got bonus points. You know? yeah, so, their,
1: their procurement department hated you, but.
0: <laughs> yeah, there were no slides. There were just questions.
1: Um, so uh, so I'm going to attempt to summarize uh, all the things you've taught us today, which are obviously broad and varied. Mm. So start your prospecting research in-house by working to understand your past deals. And what I mean by that is, um, or what Tibor means by that is, interview customers who bought but didn't buy, and then... After six months, ask customers who bought how their workflow has changed and what they've gained so that you can use this information when you're doing your prospecting. For voicemails, always leave a voicemail with just the right amount of info so that your prospects are left curious and will call you back. Debor suggests referencing a competitor to pique your prospect's interest. Say your phone number slowly and mention it right after your name so your prospect actually writes it down because they haven't decided yet if they're going to, uh, if, if this is a, a number they need or not. So they'll, they'll have already captured it by the time they're making that decision it makes things a little easier. You wanna sound a little bit authoritative but not to the point where it's rude. So you wanna thread that needle. Salespeople need to focus on why people buy. Connect on the why with your prospects, and it will help guide your conversations. Start building trust by telling stories that help you connect with your prospects and asking the tough questions that help your prospects express their pain points. Build trust over email by talking about a prospect's pain points um, or potential pain points by offering a solution and by backing it with a testimonial. In your prospecting calls, dangle some value, is Tibor's quote, dangle some value in front of your prospects to see if they're interested. Detail how you've helped other companies reach the objectives that this current prospect has. Revisit stalled prospects because they could move forward at any time. So have a nice cadence that you can reach back out to them and stick to that process. If you want to create urgency, it needs to come from your prospects. And you need to find out the, uh, the reason that they're going to have urgency by asking the difficult questions. You need to get your prospects emotionally involved and actively thinking about what's in it for them could be personally, could be professionally, could be financially, but why do they want to work with you? What's in it for them? Create a sales prospecting process based on your past wins and make sure that you stick to it. T, this has been absolutely fantastic. Where can listeners read more about your work and how do they reach out to you if they want to go deeper with you?
0: So um thank you for that. The the easiest place is there's two places. The easiest is so tiborshanto.com. So t i b o r s h a n t o.com. But I'm also in the process um, of launching a new um, a new site specifically aimed at prospectors called proactiveprospecting.club. So the proactive prospecting club and the site is proactiveprospecting.club and it's going to be launching On August the first, which I think will be before this airs, so in anticipation, we've also created a uh, a code that you'll be able to use to get a fifty percent discount if you choose to uh, join the club. So when you get there, um, just get put in the code uh, P O D O S T, so podcast outside sales talk, um, and you'll get a fifty percent discount off the uh, membership to the club. Um, And again. The key value to the club, I would argue, is the constant updating of content on a day-to-day basis, including weekly webinars, office hours, all with a singular focus of helping you be a better B2B prospector. And the way to do that is to get involved and tell us what you want us to talk about so you can use it in the field. So again, proactiveprospecting.club, not .com. We're a club.
1: I love it. Um- well, uh, Tibor, this has been a fantastic episode of the Outside Sales Talk. If any of our listeners can think of other sales reps who would benefit from learning more about prospecting and learning what Tibor has had to say here, uh, yeah. please forward this on, episode on to them. Um, take care. Until next time, everybody. And thanks a lot, Tibor, for coming and joining us today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you.